0: Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen, brothers and sisters, if you would, please open your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, we'll be looking at chapter 16, or at least the first part of it here this evening. It's Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 1 through 17. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night "'Therefore you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God "'from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. "'You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it, that is, the bread of affliction. "'For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, "'that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt "'all the days of your life. "'And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days.' "'Nor shall any of the meat which you sacrifice the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. "'You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates which the Lord your God gives you, "'but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, "'there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, "'at the time you came out of Egypt.'" And you shall roast and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. You shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are among you, at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And you shall be careful to observe these statues. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your winepress. And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless, and the widow who are within your gates. Seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that, you sh- so that you surely rejoice. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for your word. How we do thank you for all of the things which are written in it. All of the things which so wondrously point to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to see the way in which even this passage points to him. Lord, even as we consider these feasts, none of which we actually partake of today, we do not celebrate any of these things, and yet the theology of all of them is in some ways wrapped up in our own Lord's Day worship. So, Lord, help us to see how all of these things are are applied to Christ, how they are fulfilled in him, And may it be, Lord, as we continue to look at the way in which worship is related to our salvation, that we would be all the more in awe of the things which the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us on the cross, and that this awe would translate over to the way in which we worship him. For, Lord, we do ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, here we come to the great passage in Deuteronomy where we consider Israel's feasts, particularly the, the annual feasts, the, the feasts that they were required to go to Jerusalem, or as they call it here, the place that God will choose to set his name, where they have to go before the Lord and they rejoice in his presence. Now, feasts of every kind, whether it be these ones in Deuteronomy or the feasts that we are maybe more accustomed to thinking about, are times of great celebration, if you think of things like Thanksgiving, a time of feasting where there is great food, you usually invite friends and family to celebrate with you. It's a time of fellowship, a time of rejoicing. It is a time of celebration. And this is exactly the reason why these times of worship in the Old Testament were called feasts for the people of God, for the Israelites. There was the feast of unleavened bread, there's the feast of weeks, and there is the feast of tabernacles because in it, in all of these things, the great thing that is happening is the people of God are coming into the presence of God, and they are worshiping God in his fellowship. That is that is the, the purpose and the theology of these particular times. And brothers and sisters, really, this is exactly what we do every single Lord's Day. Whenever we gather together on this day that God has set apart for the worship of his name— we partake of this kind of fellowship with God. We come into His presence in the place that He has chosen to set His name in the gathering of His people, and we have a sweet communion, a time of fellowship where God, in fact, meets with us, where He speaks to us, where we speak back to Him, where we enjoy uh, even a, a meal in His presence. Uh, all of this is what we partake of in the celebration of the Lord's Day, just as in Israel worship was in the context of a feast in the presence of God, so too, even in the New Testament, every single week, every single week, we celebrate with the Lord's Day, worshiping in the presence of God, having a feast in his presence. Now, this particular passage in Deuteronomy 16 is the very end of Moses's exposition of the fourth commandment. So after this week, we're going to be looking at his exposition of the fifth commandment. So things will be moving on here. This is the, the the capstone, so to speak, of what Moses wants to say about the application of the fourth commandment to the people of God, particularly as it relates to their to their entering into the land of Canaan. These are the things that they must do as they enter into the land. The way in which the laws are going to apply to them as they are in the land. And you will notice, even as I was reading, ho- hopefully you picked up on this, that there is a number that was very prominent all the all the way throughout, and that was seven. Seven was very prominent all the way throughout, and this is part of what uh, connects these feasts to the Sabbath itself. And so, for instance, in verse 3, the, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread lasts for seven days. And then even in verse 8, there is a pattern of the seventh day being a time of public worship after six days of not doing something. So you, so there is a six plus one element in verse 8. The Feast of Weeks, the timing of it is based on seven sets of seven so seven Sabbaths, so to speak, and it, this is even um, in the name itself, the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Sabbaths, you could call it, the Feast of Tabernacles, or in some translations it's booths, but, but this, it, this also lasts for seven days. This is said twice, emphasized in the text in verses 13 and 15. All of these things then, all of these feasts that the, that the, the people of God partook of in the Old Testament, all of them build on our understanding of what the Sabbath was supposed to be. They build on our Sabbath theology. Sabbath itself, the, the 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 worship of God, and this is something we see in, in, in each of the feasts, the, the, the idea of worshiping God is built upon the theology of the redemption that we've received from Christ, and then as those who have received that redemption, we are then able to come into his presence, come into the presence of God himself, and have great fellowship with him. That's the idea of the lord's day worship that we see particularly with these with these feasts. Now we're going to look at these feasts in a couple of ways. What I want to do is I want to consider uh, Israel's feasts and its worship as a uh, just a broad uh, overview of the whole thing and then looking particularly at each of the the, the individual feasts. And then I the, the second thing I want to do then is apply this to Christ to show the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills all of these things so we'll look at israel's feasts in their own context and then look at the way in which they apply to the lord jesus christ i'll say some things that are generally applied to all of them and then we'll look more into the details of each of these particular feasts so there's a few things we need to keep in mind as we think about these three feasts again Feast of unleavened bread Feast of weeks and the Feast of tabernacles first one of the things that's very clear from all of these feasts is all of them are built on a theology of redemption that's to say there's a connection between the way in which you worship and the redemption that you say you believe in so everything and we'll see this particularly with with uh the feast of unleavened bread and the passover but it's really in all of them in all of them there is a connection between some aspect of the way in which god saved his people and that that detail will in will in will kind of give the the reason why you worship in a particular way. That's to say there's a connection between the way that we worship and the theology of redemption that we have. The details of the Passover are to match the theology of redemption that happened in the Passover itself. Now, another thing that we'll see about all of these feasts as well is that in all of them, there is a kind of perspective that they have, that it is from the perspective of having been redeemed that we come and worship in the presence of God. That is to say there's a celebration for receiving blessings that you are currently enjoying on the basis of this redemption. And part of worship is remembering and giving thanks to God for the blessings of redemption that you have received and that you are currently enjoying. Now another thing that we'll see about all these feasts is that in some ways, and and some feasts more than others, but in some ways these feasts point forward to the consummation of all things, that they look beyond themselves. One, they look beyond themselves to the fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, but even we'll see particularly with the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also called the Feast of Ingathering, that it actually looks even all the way to the end of the age, even all the way to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, when there is, in fact, an ingathering of all of the saints from the farthest corners of the world, and they are brought in at the consummation of Of all things. So there's a sense in which, in our worship, our worship is informed by God's past acts of redemption, the current blessings that we receive, and a look into the future for the the hope that is ours. All these things influence and affect the way in which we worship God. Now, the fourth thing, the fourth thing that's generally true about all of, of these feasts is that they show that the purpose of the feast is not leisure, but worship. And this is important for our understanding of sabbath the 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 purpose of sabbath is not rest from work in the sense that you are now free to do whatever you want sabbath is about the worship of god and particularly the public worship of god that's actually something that is explicitly uh, explicitly referenced with regard to the feast of the unleavened bread we see it there we also see it in the way in which all of these feasts are a ceasing from work For the sake of coming into the presence of God in the place where he chooses to set his name. And that we see in all of the feasts. In all of the feasts, there is a a requirement to cease from your labors, such that then you are able to come into the presence of God in the place that he chooses to set his name. So with that in mind, we're going to look now at the the details of each of these individual feasts and see uh, the theology that comes out of them. So we'll look first at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is verses 1 through 8. Now, in, in, with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, probably more than any of the other feasts that, that we'll look at here this evening, there is a very strong link uh, with the idea of redemption and remembering redemption. And notice, it's, it's very interesting with regard to the details of this feast, that really every single detail, every single detail that is of substance with regard to the, to the Passover is to be a remembrance of and in, and in some ways a kind of reenactment of the redemption that came when the actual Passover was slain and the exodus actually happened. The, the, the great historic exodus is a thing that is always to be in view. And so notice just a, just a few of these things. The, the date, the date is to be a reflection of it. So it's on the anniversary of the exodus. Every single year you are to remember uh, this date when God brought the people of God out of the land of Egypt. Notice the, the lack of leaven. The reason why there is to be no leaven for seven days is because the people of God are to remember that when you came out of the land of Egypt, you didn't have time even to let the bread rise, and so you had to eat it without it being leavened so that you could get out quickly. Notice even the idea of there being nothing left until the morning. This also is connected with what actually happened uh, in the Passover and with the Exodus, that's uh, there couldn't be anything left, so you, you you just ate everything that you could for the one night because you knew that you were leaving, and you, you weren't going to be preparing for any kind of provisions for the next day because the next day you were actually gone. You were going to be gone and out of the land uh, of Egypt. Even even the time of the day that you were to, to sacrifice the Passover Lamb was supposed to be a remembrance of, in remembrance of the actual time that the Passover Lamb was slaughtered, on the day that you came out of Egypt. Everything, every single detail about the celebration of the Passover is based upon and supposed to be a remembrance of the great act of redemption that God accomplished when he brought his people out of Egypt. Everything, everything in terms of the way in which the Passover was celebrated was to look back to redemption. Everything was to be a reminder of it. The the theology of the Passover— was celebrated and enacted, reenacted every single year as they celebrated the Passover. That's to be the idea. There's a connection between redemption and worship. Our worship is patterned after the acts of redemption that God has accomplished. And this was certainly true with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and particularly the Passover uh, in the Old Testament. Now, another thing that we see is that, particularly with this law, there are other places where the Passover is described in the Pentateuch. But here, there is the particular application of the the Passover law to the people of God coming into the promised land. As to say, that the perspective of the celebration of the Passover here is not only that you've been taken out of Egypt, but also that you are actually receiving the blessings of being in the land of Canaan. And so you you are— so you are receiving the blessings that was won for you through the redemption, and part, that, part of then the worship is in fact uh, your recognition of these great blessings that you have received, and you're worshiping God for them. And we'll actually see um, as we go through the, the rest how this becomes even more the case with the Passover, because one of the things that uh, all of these feasts emphasize is a kind of agricultural element to them. If you were wondering, you know, it makes sense why there would be this, this emphasis on redemption. And, and all these feasts, in some ways, reference a different part of the exodus, different part of the redemption that the people of God had. But there's also this emphasis on agriculture, that there is a a, a tying of these worship celebrations to the ingathering of the harvest. And the reason for that is, is because the land of Canaan itself was to be a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And therefore... When you come into the land, the the regular patterns of being able to experience the great blessings of the produce of this land were also meant to be uh, part of the regular calendar for worship because you were to remember that these are everything that you receive in the land of Canaan, if you're an Israelite, was won for you through the redemption that was accomplished in the Exodus. And so part of all of these times of worship then were to be celebrations of the current blessings that you receive as a result of redemption. And we'll see this is also going to be the case with the way in which we worship God. Now, part of what we do when we worship the Lord, we look back at the things which the Lord Jesus Christ has done, the redemption which he's accomplished. This, this uh, gospel-centered uh, theology is going to determine the way in which we worship, but also we rejoice in the blessings which even now we receive, which even now we have received from the Lord Jesus Christ because of these acts of redemption. And the agricultural elements of all these feasts uh, tie into this very fact. You are receiving the blessings in the land of Canaan. And when you do, you need to make sure that you are enjoying those blessings in the presence of God, giving thanks, acknowledging that you have these only by the redemption that he himself has won. Now, another thing that we see then with, with the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover, which uh, those two things are linked Uh, The the idea is that the the Passover is the the first day, the 14th day uh, of the first month, and then the next seven days are the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they're often tied together. And here in Deuteronomy, uh, they're particularly tied together. But the last thing that we see is that this feast is all about worship. It's all about worship. And notice this is said explicitly in verse 8. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. So here's a six day and then seventh day pattern, very much like the Sabbath. And there is a prohibition against working. You cannot work on this seventh day. The idea is that this is a kind of Sabbath. But on that seventh day, it's not just that you are told you cannot work and therefore you're free to go do whatever you want. The idea is you cannot work because on that day, you will have a sacred assembly. If you were to ask, what is a sacred assembly? It's simply a public worship service it's a public worship service the idea is is that with the sabbath all throughout the old testament we, we see this it's rest from your labors so as to worship god it's not rest from your labors, so as to have a rest for yourself such that you you know just cease from your activities it's not a ceasing from activities it's a ceasing from some activities in order to be devoted to others we see this actually particularly clearly in leviticus 23 where the idea of a sacred assembly, and the word is a bit different, but it's it's sometimes translated like a a holy convocation, something like that. But the idea is exactly the same. There is to be a public worship service. That's the idea. There's to be a time in Leviticus 23 when all the people gather together. And that's said specifically for the Sabbath. So here we have the the feasts, which are tied to Sabbath theology. In Leviticus 23, it's the Sabbath and all the feasts. But then in each of the feasts then— in leviticus 23 which actually goes through even more than than just these in all of them there is a you shall not labor because you shall then have a holy convocation A holy convocation is to be the purpose that is to say the purpose of the ceasing from labor is so that you can gather together with other christians in order to worship god and this theology carries through into the new testament this is exactly what the lord's day worship is we are to cease from our labors so, so that we are enabled to worship the Lord with his people. This means then that it is not keeping the Sabbath. It is not keeping the Sabbath if you if you refuse to work, but then also refuse to come to church. If you refuse to come into the public worship of God. Now, you could, of course, be providentially hindered. This or that thing could happen. That's not really what I'm talking about here. The idea, though, the the, the idea is is that apart from being providentially hindered, things happening, if you are ceasing from work, you have not kept the Sabbath until you have come into the worship of God. And even in the Old Testament, the emphasis was on not even doing that individually, but doing it in the public worship service. This is why we have morning and evening worship. We bookend the Lord's Day uh, with the worship of God. And this is why this is important. If you were to, to, to uh, even think about what's the most important thing that you can do on the Lord's Day, it is the worship of God, and not just individually, but the public worship of God. More important than personal Bible reading or individual prayer on the Lord's Day is the public worship of God. And this is what we see even in Israel's feast in the Old Testament. Now, verse 8 Verse 8 is where we see this emphasis on public worship. There's another way, though, in which Moses emphasizes this, coming at it from a, a, different, ang- a, a different angle and perspective, and it's particularly a very Deuteronomic way to, to speak of it, uh, so to speak. And this is, be- this is um, in all of the feasts, there is an emphasis on coming and worshiping God in the place which God chooses to set his name. Now, I've mentioned over and over again that this is the great theme of, of the book of Deuteronomy, after chapter 12, and particularly as Moses is expounding this first table of the law, all of the commandments with regard to the worship of God in some ways relate to coming to God in the place that he chooses to set his name. This, of course, implies the public worship of God, but in some ways it's, it's more than that. The, the idea is that this is the place where God's presence is. This is where God's presence is, and this is what you get. This is the the great blessing that you have when you worship the Lord, that when you come before him in the place that he's chosen to set his name, there is a manifestation of his presence that is different than his manifestation of his presence in any other location or at any other time, that there is a special blessing that you have in the presence of God as you come and you worship him. There is a sense in which we could say God is everywhere, There's a sense in which we can say God is everywhere with the believer in a special way, but there is an even more special sense in which we can say that God is especially present with his people when they come to worship him. This is the place that God's chosen to set his name. There are other things that Israel could do to honor God. There was only one place where God had chosen to set his name. There was only one way to come into his presence in this way, and that was through the public worship of God. So all of these things we see in the first eight verses with regard to the Passover— now, with regard to the Feast of Weeks, which you may also know by the name Pentecost, this is uh, the, where, uh, uh, where the, the Feast Pentecost comes from. Pentecost is simply the, the Greek word to describe um, the 50 days with regard to the timing of the Feast of Weeks. So in the, in the, with, the, with the Feast of Weeks, there was seven Sabbaths, so that's seven times 749, and then the next day would be the beginning uh, of the Feast of Weeks. And so that would be 50 days, so that's where the word Pentecost comes from. And here, in particular with the Feast of Weeks, as I mentioned, there are two things that are always highlighted. Redemption, and then some, something with regard to the agriculture, the, the produce of the land. And here, the emphasis with the Feast of Weeks, this is all throughout the Pentateuch, the accent clearly falls on the agricultural elements, that there is to be um, a, a kind of rejoicing before God because of the harvest that the people of God would have. So the idea is, is uh, even with the timing of the Feast of Weeks, the, 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 the timer starts, so to speak, with the uh, first fruits. So when Israel re- gathers the first fruits, then 50 days later, when the harvest is in full swing, then the people of God are to bring from that harvest and rejoice before God. So there's this connection between the Feast of Weeks and the harvest that the people of God would have. But notice as well, there's still an emphasis on redemption which we see particularly uh, with the last verse of this, this section in verse 12. The reason why you are to keep the Feast of Weeks, which seems to be all about the produce of the land, is because you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. So the idea is is that even as you partake of the harvest, which is the whole point of the Feast of Weeks, you've received great blessings in the, in the land of Canaan even as you partake of it, you are to come before the Lord, you are to rejoice in his presence, and you are to remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. And the only way that you could be partaking of all these blessings is through the redemption that Christ has accomplished. And this is the same that's true for us, brothers and sisters. We come into the presence of God, we rejoice in all the great things he has given to us, and we remember, we remember that we could have none of it except for God sent his son to die for his people. God sent his son to die for his people. Now, as I mentioned, the main accent for the the Feast of Weeks is on the blessings that you receive in the land. There is a connection between uh, the harvest and the celebration of the Feast of Weeks. One of the things that we see, too, here, that's important to recognize, is that with the Feast of Weeks, there is a link that's drawn between first fruits and harvest between those two things the idea is is that the first fruits when when you see the first fruits this lets you know that there is a great harvest coming and the first fruits is an indication of future blessings that you're going to receive this will become very important as we think about the way in which these things are related to the lord jesus christ there's a link between the first fruits and the harvest now it came to be that the day of the first fruits became standardized and it came to be linked with the feast of unleavened bread so that's where i said even the feast of the, with the uh, that's connected with the passover is related to harvest um, it, it came to be associated with because of about that time would be the time of the first fruits and so with the feast of unleavened bread there's the first fruits then you have the feast of weeks is uh the the kind of first celebration of the harvest which uh, god has given to his people now another emphasis that we see in the feast of weeks is that there is a connection between the feast of weeks in particular and joy. If you are to receive if you are to receive all these blessings in the land of Canaan, all this great produce uh, that the land of Canaan produces, it means that when you come before God, you must do so rejoicing. That's one of the things that is particularly emphasized said over and over again. Uh, in this particular section you shall rejoice before the lord your god you your son your daughter your female servant this is what you're to do you're to be happy as you come into the presence of god and this brothers and sisters is the, the way that worship should be even today when you come before the b- before the lord each and every lord's day and you remember all the great things that he's done you remember that you were a slave in the kingdom of satan himself when you remember those things And you think about all the great blessings that God has given to you. The harvest that even now you are partaking of. You are not just to come into his presence. You are to come into his presence rejoicing. Always rejoicing in all that God has done for you. You have received great blessings that have come out of redemption. And therefore, you are to come into his presence rejoicing. Now that's the Feast of Weeks. Notice the last one, the Feast of Booths. Or the Feast of Tabernacles as it's translated here. Now, it's interesting because this one is related both to redemption and to the, the produce of the land in actually really strong ways. It's, uh, in, in other passages in the Pentateuch, um, both of these elements are emphasized, particularly with regard to redemption. This comes out even in the name. The reason why the Feast of Tabernacles is called Tabernacles is because on this feast, as it says in Leviticus 23, the people of God were to construct for themselves tabernacles. Right? So the idea is just tents. They were to, to make for themselves these tents. They were to come to the place that God's chosen to set his name, so to Jerusalem. And they were to dwell in tents for seven days. And when they do that, they were to remember the way in which God cared for his people all the way throughout the wilderness. So here we have another aspect of the great redemption that was worked through Moses and that, that God worked in the Exodus. And it is being memorialized, so to speak, uh, in uh, this particular feast. All the people of god were always to remember the way in which god cared for them throughout the wilderness and they were to do this by reenacting being in the desert they were to construct for themselves tents and they were to remember the way in which god brought them through the desert and into the promised land that he got them there and that he cared for them uh, all the way through and so again even if it's just the, the name we see with the feast of tabernacles there's a strong link to another aspect of redemption but notice uh, as well, there is a link, a very strong link as well, to the idea uh, of harvest. Again, the, the purpose of uh, the Feast of Tabernacles was also, we, we, we see this particularly in verses 13 to 15 here in Deuteronomy, is just as in the Feast of Weeks there is a rejoicing before God for the beginning of the harvest that uh, God was giving to the people, so too with the Feast of Tabernacles, or as it's called in other places, the Feast of the gathering. There is to be a rejoicing before God when the harvest is complete, when everything is accomplished with regard to uh, all the work and the labor and the people of God have now experienced the full blessings of that year's harvest. Again, this is why in other places this is called the Feast of Ingathering. So the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Tabernacles are the same thing. And the point is then is that in all of these, in all of these feasts, there is this progression with regard to uh, partaking of the produce of the land in the feast of unleavened bread there is the first fruits the first fruits gives provides a link to a harvest that's coming which is celebrated in the feast of weeks and then at the end when all of the produce has been brought in there is a they feast to celebrate that the the feast of ingathering the feast of the tabernacles which comes towards the end of the year every part of the receiving of the blessings in the land of Canaan were to be met with Worshiping God, everything that you receive in the land of Canaan was to be uh, was to be a part of the worship that you give to God. You receive the, uh, the a blessing from God in the land of Canaan, and then you return thanksgiving and worship to Him. Now, why is it that there are all these agricultural elements to Israel's worship? I've already uh, mentioned part of this, but the idea here is that the land of Canaan, as I said is a picture of the final consummation, of the the bringing in of the new heavens and the new earth. It's it's a picture of what is coming for the people of God. And insofar as we partake of those blessings, we are to worship God for them. If you have received a foretaste of the blessings of the new heavens and the new earth, then for the sake of receiving those blessings, because you've received those blessings, you are then to worship God. If you've received these blessings, then that must lead to worship. That's the idea. So now, how do all these things apply to us today? As I mentioned, we don't celebrate the Passover. We don't celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Tabernacles. How, How do these things relate to us? Well, they relate in actually very strong ways. Christ is the great Passover lamb who was slain such that through his redeeming act of uh, his redeeming death all the people of god are now brought into the land of canaan we have been redeemed from sin and satan and even death itself through the death of the lord jesus christ he is the passover lamb as the apostle john says as, as, excuse me john the baptist said in john one he is the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the earth not only that but even as the Feast of Unleavened Bread began to be linked with the idea of the first fruits, he's also the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the beginning of the reception of all the blessings that were coming for the people of God in the new heavens and the new earth. He is the, 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 the first fruits of the blessings of Canaan, are seen in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he fulfills both the redemptive aspect of the feast and even then the agricultural aspect with regard to the land of Canaan. With the Feast of Weeks, we see. Uh, we see even the same things. And this is where it's important to remember there's a connection between the first fruits and then the harvest that comes afterwards. Because there is a, a first fruits, it proves that there is a harvest coming. That's, that's the idea. So when Christ is the first fruits and he's risen from the dead, it proves then that there is something else that's coming. There is a full harvest that is coming. And this is why then after... Uh, after the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and fittingly, then on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out. This was the beginning of the the full harvest of which Christ's resurrection was the first fruits. And and this means, then, brothers and sisters, that just as if if you were to ask, you know, is is a first fruits of what? When we when we call the Lord Jesus Christ the first fruits, what we mean is he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. He is the first fruits of life from death. And if that's the case then, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on Pentecost, the idea is that now we have the beginning of the harvest. Christ, the first fruits, has come, and now the harvest of life is to come. And so with the, with the pouring out of the Spirit then, there is, for all those who receive the Spirit, there is a movement from death to life. You have received the benefits of the first fruits. You are a part of the harvest, whereby there is now a communication of life such that you partake of the blessings of the harvest of Canaan, you partake of, and you e- even in your soul, you are a part of the blessings of life that was won through the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this is what the theology of Pentecost is a realization of. The harvest is here. The harvest is here because we've seen the first fruits. The first fruits has come, and now we have the harvest of souls. This is why the Lord Jesus Christ uh, has said, you know, in, in speaking of. Uh, the, the way in which there is going to be a time of great ingathering of souls, a uh, great time of evangelism. He says in John 4, you know, lift up your eyes, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He says that again in Matthew chapter 9 and other places as well. The idea is, is that there is a harvest, and there are going to be people that are going to be brought in in that harvest. Once the first fruits come, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, then there will in fact be a harvest. The resurrection life, so, so the idea here is that the resurrection life has begun in you. You are receiving the benefit that was uh, pointed to by the first fruits Himself. Now, then, the idea of the of booths and tabernacles, the idea of uh, the feast of tabernacles, is also fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is in a number of ways. Um, just as with the idea of the the, taberna- the the feast of tabernacles, there is this relationship to the wilderness, and there's also a relationship to in gathering. So too, when we look at the way in which christ fulfills these things we see the exact same pattern Uh, if you think of uh, john chapter 7 it's very interesting that in that uh, passage in that chapter the setting of it is during the feast of booze during the feast of tabernacles there is a uh this this uh feast that, that comes the lord jesus christ doesn't immediately go up he goes up and on the last great day of the feast he says that he is going to be the one who will pour out the holy spirit He will give the living water to all who thirst. Now, this was to be a fulfillment of something that the prophets had spoken of. The prophet Isaiah, in particular, had spoken of a time that was coming when the Messiah would come. And rather than the people of God having to dwell in tabernacles, the spirit would be poured out on the land and the wilderness would be transformed into a paradise. Such that as the people then go through this wilderness of life, they would actually be provided for as if they were in paradise itself that they would actually be able to experience the blessings of paradise because they have the Spirit. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills for his people. The wilderness wandering, so to speak, that we have in this life as we move towards the land of Canaan is one in which we are already partaking of the Spirit who gives life and transforms that wilderness into even the Garden of Eden itself. The Lord Jesus Christ fulfills this in such a way that the, the wilderness disappears because of the abundant blessing of the spirit. Now we also see it with the second element which is in gathering. In gathering. And this particularly looks ahead to the last day just as Christ the first fruits has come and the harvest then has begun with the pouring out of the spirit which continues even to this day as more and more Uh, souls are harvested they come in and they're converted to the lord uh, jesus christ so too the lord tells us that there is going to be a time of ingathering at the very last day at the end of time on the day when the lord jesus christ returns and this is this is why at least one of the reasons why uh, this kind of imagery of ingathering is used Uh, as a metaphor for what is going to happen on the last day so the lord jesus christ when he's giving his parables of the kingdom and in matthew chapter 13 will describe the last day in this way there's coming a day when the angels will be sent out and they will ingather everything and when that happens there will be this great separation and the wheat will be on one side and the chaff on the other the 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 wheat will be stored and the chaff will be burned think of the same thing with uh, revelation in in the book of revelation there's this same description uh, where there is where there are angels that go out and they harvest the earth. The idea is that on the last day there is going to be this great and final ingathering when the harvest is completely fulfilled and everything that was uh, that that was to be ingathered that was to be the produce of the land of Canaan so to speak will in fact be co- uh, accomplished. And this is what the feast of ingathering was pointing to. There is coming a time when all that is related to the land of Canaan will be fulfilled. It'll be accomplished and this points forward to the final day of consummation all of these things all these things are the ways in which christ fulfills all of these feasts everything is related to the lord jesus christ the redemption was accomplished by him he is the first fruits he's the one that pours out the spirit he's the one that will send out his angels uh, on the last day he's the one that transforms the wilderness into uh, a, a a paradise he is the consummation of all of these things so brothers and sisters if it is the case then if it is the case that all of worship in the old testament had to be by necessity built upon the great acts of redemption of the exodus it had to be everything that was done in worship was related in some way to the exodus or to the fruit of the exodus so to speak the blessings of canaan if that was the case how much more is it to be the case for us that when we worship uh, God every single Lord's Day, that our worship is also to be built upon the great realities to which the Exodus pointed, the, the great realities which are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why it's so important that, that all, all of the things that we do on the Lord's Day, every single thing, is to be related to the redemption that the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished. Our worship is to be a reflection of the theology that we believe in. Just as every detail in the Passover, at the celebration of it, pointed back to something that the, Lord, that the Lord had accomplished through Moses on that day. So to everything that we do in worship is to be uh, built upon the things that the Lord Jesus Christ has done. W- which is why, if you can think about the, the logic of the order of our worship, it begins with God calling us into his presence, and then we, we confess our faith in him recognizing that faith is a fundamental element of the gospel, that we are justified uh, by our faith, that without faith it's impossible to please God. We come into his presence, we worship and praise him, we confess our faith, then we confess our sins before him, recognizing uh, that we cannot be forgiven except insofar as he has saved us through his son. Then we receive forgiveness from him, at which point then we return thanks to him by offering to him of the, of the gifts that he has given to us. Then we move to the ministry of the word where the Lord Jesus Christ and His redemption is preached and proclaimed. And then we have table fellowship with him built upon that same act of redemption. The body of Christ broken for us and his blood poured out before we end with worship and receiving a blessing from God. Our worship service is built upon the truths of the gospel that we believe. And this means then, brothers and sisters... That as you think about all these feasts, it's true, again, we don't do any of them. We, we, don't, we don't celebrate the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We don't do any of these things. And yet, all of the theology that's in all of these things teach us how we are to worship. And just as, just as if, you, if you came before God without a grateful heart, without a heart that was rejoicing before God in the, uh, during all of these feasts, It would show a lack of faith and a lack of zeal for God's great act of redemption in the Exodus. So, too, if you do not come before God each Lord's Day rejoicing in his presence, rejoicing because of all the great things that he has done, it shows a lack of commitment to the gospel itself. There is a connection between the way in which we worship and the theology that we believe. The worship is built on the theology of the redemption. And so if you prize the redemption, you have to prize the worship. That's the idea. Because the worship is just an expression of the theology of redemption. It, it's, an, it's an acting out of it, so to speak, where, where all of it is put before you. And remember, if you, if you love it, if you love the redemption, you have to love the worship which is built on it. This is how you can know that you've made progress in holiness, brothers and sisters. If you have done everything else, if you keep the second table perfectly, but you have no zeal for the worship of God, you are at best a babe in Christ. You are at best an an immature Christian, but you know that you are making progress in grace when you look forward to the Lord's Day above every other day that you can say with the psalmist better is one day in your courts than a thousand days elsewhere. Why? Because I love my God who has saved me. And I love gathering together with the people of God to rejoice in all these things, to to see all of this theology played out, to experience the, 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 the worship wherein we celebrate these great acts of redemption. Everything that Israel did in all of their feasts was an acting out of the redemption, was a celebration of the redemption that was won for them. And so too it is to be for us, brothers and sisters. May it be that God would grant us the grace to see worship in this way, to rejoice before him out of love for his name, for all that he has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how would you thank you? How would you thank you for all of these truths, all of these things which you've given to us? Lord, even the things that we no longer keep in the scriptures are still so instructive for us. May it be that you would stir our hearts Help us to see the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that he has done for us in salvation. And may it be, Lord, that we would know this blessing, that it would would be evident that you are blessing your church and pouring out your Spirit on us by the way in which you move our hearts to worship. Lord, may it be, may it be that we would be consumed with zeal for you, with love for your name, and may it be evident in the way that we sanctify the Lord's day. For, Lord, we do ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart that through the preached word, your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.